Thank you, Ben, and thank you to all those boys and girls who sang with such joy and excitement uh, and moved around with such joy and excitement. But we need some encouragement. We need comfort. We need joy. We're concluding today this series of messages, What Did Jesus Do? And we've talked about how Jesus invited people into a relationship with himself, and then he invested in those people, pouring of himself into their lives, and, and, and then how he interceded for them and for us, that we all may be in the world but not of the world, that the Father would protect us and sanctify us and send us out into this world to get involved in the lives around us and meet people's needs just as Jesus did. Jesus did these things, and they're examples for us to follow, and there's so many other things we could talk about. I mean, we could just go on and on and on about all the things that Jesus did and that we should be doing. But today I want us to focus on this idea of encouragement, comfort, joy. Jesus encouraged his followers. He comforted them. He in John 17, we looked at a few weeks ago, he prayed for their encouragement and for joy and that they would be protected and united. Being in the world but not of it puts a lot of strain on us. It puts us at odds with a world that doesn't know Jesus, that rejects him and doesn't understand him. It, it, uh, living in a broken, corrupt, and fallen world can be very difficult and challenging. And Paul followed Jesus' example as an encourager. Of God's people. Encouragement, comfort, and joy are some of the themes that are found throughout the book of Philippians. And that's what we're going to look at today. Philippians chapter 2. If you'll go ahead and turn in your Bibles to that. Paul's main point in these verses is that true encouragement, comfort, and joy come from being united with Christ and united with the people of Christ, with his church. It's all about relationships. It's about our relationship with Jesus. It's about our relationships with each other as followers of Jesus. And in these verses, Paul also not only talks about this encouragement, comfort, and joy, he also points out some of the problems the Philippian church was facing. And if we look at this with honesty, we'll admit these are also some of our own problems. Um, Let's look at, just look at verses 3 and 4. We'll come back and read all this again in a minute, but look at verses 3 and 4. He talks about selfish ambition and vain conceit and... Uh, don't just look out to your own interests, but to the interests of others. So the first problem that Paul mentions is is selfish ambition. They were struggling with this this desire for personal recognition and prestige. And that doesn't lead to unity. That causes division. And it, it actually robs us of joy when we are just consumed with selfish ambition. The second problem he mentions there is vain conceit. The people there had a false sense of their own superiority, which kept them from working together in harmony and ruined any sense of like-mindedness. And then the third problem he points out is self-centeredness. You know, they were guilty of thinking about themselves and their own needs and desires and concerns. You know, love in the Bible is always a selfless love. We should strive to this selfless love. And if that's true, if biblical Christian love is selfless, then the opposite of love isn't hate. The opposite of love is selfishness. And when we are only concerned with ourselves, we aren't really loving the people around us. So again, if we look at this list and we're honest, selfish ambition, sometimes we're guilty of that. 
of wanting to make a name for ourselves and wanting to have the accolades and the honors and sit at the, sit at the head of the table. Vain conceit. Sometimes we can be a little conceited. We can think a little too highly of ourselves, can't we? And, of course, self-centeredness. Who among us doesn't struggle with wanting to look out for our wants and our interests and, and our schedule and our plans, even if that means we can't do what God would have us to do? And so Paul offers some solutions, which we're going to look at in a little bit. But first I want us to look at the example that Paul uses to illustrate. So we're going to kind of do this a little out of order. Before we look at the solutions that Paul offers, we're going to look at the illustration that he gives us. And we see in verse 5 that one of the things that Jesus did, Jesus illustrated. He illustrated for us the kinds of people that we're to be. Let's look at verse 5. He says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So Paul is showing us by pointing us to Jesus, he's showing us what true Christian unity and selfless love looks like. And therefore, the true source of our encouragement, our comfort, and our joy is Jesus. In our New Testament reading this morning, we read that we should fix our eyes on him. We should consider him the pioneer and the perfecter, the author and the finisher of our faith. And just as we've done these past four weeks, we need to look to Jesus as our example. We need to have his mind. His attitude. The, here this word, uh, the NIV translates it attitude. Yours may say mind. That same word there in verse 5 is also used up in verse 2 when he tells us to be like-minded. It's the exact same word. So when we talk about being like-minded as Christians, it doesn't mean we all have to think the same way about everything. It doesn't mean we all have to agree about everything. It doesn't mean that we've got to agree with David's ideas or with your ideas or, or Matt's ideas. That's not what it means to be like-minded. To be like-minded means we all share the same mind. Now, according to verse 5, whose mind are we supposed to share? Christ's, Jesus' mind. He's the mind that our minds should be most like. We should have His attitude toward one another. If we're going to think in agreement with anyone... We should think in agreement with Jesus. And so Jesus illustrates this mindset of unity, this attitude of humility and service. And we see his example spelled out here, his illustration for us in four phases. And each one teaches us an important truth. The first phase is his pre-incarnate glory. And this teaches us about Jesus' divinity. His divinity. Look at verse 6. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Now, we're going to take our time and walk through this. This is, I told Matt, I said, I keep getting to about Thursday as I'm working on these sermons, especially the one on John 17 and this one, and I get to about 30, and I've got just stacks of notes, and I'm like, what have I done to myself? How am I going to preach all this in 30 minutes? <laughs> so, so we're going we're gonna, to, there's a lot to unpack and walk through here, so keep up, all right? Stay with me. All right, so... The first thing we see here about how Jesus is God is that He is God eternally. He is God eternally. This word being, who being in very nature God, that's a, this is technical, but it's, that's the present participle in Greek, which indicates a state of continuous being, a state of continuous existence from the beginning. So in other words, Jesus 
being in very nature God, that's saying that from the foundations of the world, from eternity past, Jesus has always been God. He didn't become God. He always has been God. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Or as Colossians 1.15 says, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. That doesn't mean He was the first created. That means that He has supremacy. Like the firstborn son is the, is the chief son. He's the one that's going to inherit it all. Jesus is first, foremost, above all, over all of creation because he was there before creation happened. Jesus has eternally been God. Secondly, Jesus is God essentially. In his essence, when it says, who being in very nature God, that word for very nature is morphe in the Greek. It's where we get words like morphology or metamorphosis. It's only used in the New Testament here in verse 7 and in Mark 16, 12, where it talks about Jesus' post-resurrection appearance. So this word isn't used very often in the Bible. Morphe means the outer manifestation of something's true inner essence. Some translations say form, that, that he was in, in his very form he was God, meaning his nature, his character. So he was in his essence in his essence, Jesus is God. In his nature, his form. Hebrews 1.3 says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Jesus, in his essence, is God. And third, we see that Jesus is God equally. When it says that he did not consider equality with God. That word equality means exact copy, equivalent, same as. It's, it's that word there we read in Hebrews. He's the exact representation of God's being. Jesus has always been equal to and exactly the same as God in his very essence, nature, and character. Or as John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. One and the same. So in Jesus, we see exactly what God is like. Informed, in nature, in essence. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are one and the same. Jesus is the visible, physical manifestation of the invisible God. Or as Jesus told Philip in John 14, 9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Now, Paul goes on in this verse to write that Jesus did not consider this equality with God as something to be grasped. Now, the Greek word there that's translated something to be grasped is one of the most debated Greek words in the entire New Testament. And one of the reasons is because this is the only place it's found in the New Testament. So you can't look at other places it's used and try to determine what it means. Uh, so similar uses outside the Bible... You know, it is used in other places in ancient Greek literature. So when we look at it in those places, it can be translated as rob, steal, hold by force, snatch away, plunder. It can mean to cling to or to grasp. So the sense here is that Jesus, God the Son, never considered using his equality with the Father for his own advantage what that means. He didn't consider using this to his own advantage. It wasn't something he held on to out of fear as if he thought he could lose it 
or that he would ever use his divinity as an excuse not to fulfill his purpose on earth. That's what that means. He didn't consider this something that he had to selfishly, stingily hold on to. He was willing to do this next part. We see the pre-incarnate glory, Jesus' divinity, but then this next part is his incarnation where we see Jesus' humanity. Let's look at verses 7 and 8. So Jesus didn't consider his equality with God something to be grasped, so what did he do? Verse 7, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now we're approaching Advent Christmas, as we've already talked about this morning, when we think a lot about the Incarnation. We think about God the Son taking on human flesh and being born in Bethlehem. This passage can help us to see past the shepherds and the angels and the manger and the swaddling clothes to really begin to see the reality-changing truth of what happened on that holy night. The full meaning here of did not consider equality with God something to be grasped is realized in the next verse, in Jesus taking on human form. What did that mean for Jesus to become human? Paul explains. First, it means he became nothing. He says he became nothing. Now, this is another one of those hotly debated terms among Bible scholars. The Greek word here is kenosis. And it can be translated as emptied, gave up privileges, made of no reputation, rendered void, drained, or made powerless. This same root word is used up in verse 3 when Paul talks about that empty, vain conceit. That same word, empty conceit, vain conceit, the same word he uses here to describe what Jesus did. So what does this mean when it says that Jesus made himself nothing? Does that mean that Jesus emptied himself of his divinity? Does it mean that he laid aside some of his qualities or attributes as God? Some people interpret it to mean that. And while it is true, that through the incarnation, some of the manifestation of Jesus' glory was veiled. He veiled some of his glory, which is why we see on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus removes that veil, remember? And Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they fall down in fear and terror because they see Jesus in his full glory. So yes, Jesus in his human form veiled some of that glory. In his humanity, Jesus chose to restrict himself for the sake of the mission. We see examples of this in the wilderness when Jesus was tempted. Remember, he was hungry. And he denied himself food and refused to use his powers to turn stones into bread. We also see Jesus often talking about how he obeyed the Father's will, that everything he did was from the Father, and that everything he taught was what the Father gave him to teach. You see this submission of God the Son to God the Father. Jesus relied on the Holy Spirit to empower him to perform his miracles. Now, why did Jesus do all this? Jesus is God. He could have done and said whatever he wanted to in his own power and strength. But Jesus restricted himself to identify with those he came to save and so that he could set an example for us to follow. Jesus' nature as God was never gobbled up by his humanity. He was human and he was God 100%. 
And so we should never look at what Jesus did in his ministry and excuse ourselves from following his lead by saying things like, well, you know, he was Jesus. Of course he could do that. Or, well, you know, I mean, Jesus is God, so of course he's going to be able to do that. And we do that sometimes, don't we? We look at Jesus as an example and we think, well, I'm not Jesus. But nowhere does Jesus ever give us that excuse. We are given the same commission. We are sent as his ambassadors. We are called his body on the earth. We are sent to make disciples of him. And we are empowered with the same Holy Spirit that he had. We are never given the excuse that we should just say, Ah, well, I can never live up to Jesus' example. He came to set us that example so we would follow it. So if Paul isn't referring to Jesus somehow laying aside his godhood here, then what does he mean by this? I think it means that Jesus emptied himself of himself. In other words, Jesus didn't pour out his divinity. He poured out himself in service to us. He made himself as nothing. He spent himself on our behalf. For 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. It's this great, beautiful exchange that took place on Calvary's cross. I like the NIV translation. It says he made himself nothing. Another translation says he made himself of no reputation. And this speaks to both Jesus' humanity and his humility, which we'll look at in a minute. So for Jesus to become a human, it meant he became nothing. He poured himself out. He who was rich became poor for our sakes. Secondly, he became a servant. Paul says that he took on the very nature of a servant. That's that same word we saw up in verse 6, morphe. Exact same phrase. Jesus is the exact representation of God. He is God in essence, nature, and character. That's what morphe means. So to say that he also took on the morphe, the very nature of a servant, that has some immense implications. Think about it. Jesus, the ultimate expression of God, the exact representation of God, is also Jesus, the ultimate expression of God. Of servanthood. He is as much the embodiment of servanthood as he is the embodiment of God. That's what Paul is telling us here. I don't know about you, but that, that's mind blowing to me. Do you want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. Do you know what you want to know what a servant should look like? Look at Jesus. It's one and the same. I mean, isn't it amazing to you that the God who created the cosmos, the great I Am, the ultimate example of limitless power, is also the greatest example of loneliness and service? Think about it. He was born in a stable to a young Hebrew girl raised by a simple craftsman. He stubbed his toe, it hurt. He got tired. He got hungry. He got thirsty. The maker of the stars had to rub sticks together to make a fire to cook his food on. The God who could breathe out stars had a lot of fire like any of us would. He washed his disciples' feet. He fed the hungry, healed the sick, comforted the grieving. He was in every way a true servant. He became nothing. He became a servant. Third, it says he became a man. 
Now, Paul uses two similar phrases in verse 7 and 8 to explain Jesus' humanity. He says that he took, he says, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. And both of these uh, together give us the general idea that the one who is equal with God also made himself equal with mankind. The Greek word is homoiona, which means image, being similar to, analogous to. Jesus, the image of the invisible God, is also the image of visible humanity. In 1 Corinthians, Paul refers to Jesus as the second Adam. See, through his incarnation, Jesus not only shows us what God is like, he not only shows us what servanthood is like, but he shows us what humanity was always meant to be like. He's the new man. He came to show us what God always intended for us to be like. He's analogous to God's ideal and original intent for each of us. Which is why John wrote in 1 John 2, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. We are to live as Jesus did. We should seek to live as Jesus did because he shows us how God always intended life to be lived. And again, lest we get confused by what Paul is saying here, he's not saying that Jesus was 50% God and 50% man. We're not saying like Jesus was some kind of like half God, half man. And so that's why we see this parallel description in verse 8. It says being found in appearance as a man. Paul's making this clear to us. The Greek word there for appearance is the word schema. It's only used one other place in the New Testament. It means present form, shape, or structure. It's different from the word morphe. Morphe deals with something's inner essence. Schema is more about something's outer structure or appearance. So that's not to say again, I told you this was heavy, deep stuff, didn't I? That's not to say again that Jesus only appeared to be a human. The point is that while Jesus did become fully human, his essence and nature is still that of God. Does that make sense? He was human and he was God. I say that makes sense. I don't think it really does make sense to us, does it? We understand it, but it is beyond our understanding at the same time. Now, Paul doesn't just stop with Jesus' humanity through the incarnation. Yes, I mean, that's quite a step down from the almighty creator God, right? I mean, the God who is omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, the infinitely holy God, willingly limited himself in time and space in the human body. But wait, there's more. Jesus not only became a man and a servant, he also died a criminal's death on a Roman cross. That's the next phase that we see. Jesus' humanity is revealed through his crucifixion. I'm sorry, his humility is revealed through the crucifixion. Paul goes on to say that not only did he do all of this, not only did he make himself nothing and become a servant and a human, it says he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, if you remember in that wilderness temptation, Satan was trying to get Jesus with the same basic temptation that got Adam and Eve and plunged all humanity into sin and death. He wanted Jesus to abandon the mission the Father had sent him to complete. That mission of being our sinless, perfect sacrifice to redeem us and reconcile us 
with the holy God. And Jesus rejected that. Jesus rejected every temptation he ever faced. He lived the sinless, perfect life that we could never live, and therefore he could pay the price for our rebellion against God. So in the wilderness, Satan tries to tempt Jesus away from that path. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the night Jesus was betrayed, his humanity still did not want to face the coming torture, ridicule, and shame and abandonment that he knew was lying before him. He didn't want to drink the cup of God's wrath that you and I deserve, but Jesus obeyed the Father. He once again rejected the temptation, and he prayed, Not my will, but yours be done. And as Paul says here, he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus is the ultimate example of humble, faithful obedience, of trusting in the Father's love and will even enough to hang on a cross. And as you read this passage of Scripture, especially verses 6, 7, and 8, it's kind of a question of how low can you go. Right? Not only did Jesus stoop down from heaven to earth, not only did the limitless God become a limited human being, divinity taking on humanity, Jesus didn't just become any human, He became a servant, a slave. The lowest of the lowly. He wasn't born to a wealthy, powerful, elite ruling family. He was born into poverty and obscurity. And Jesus wasn't born just to live as one of us and identify with us. He was born to die for us. And it wasn't just any death. It was the lowliest of the lowest deaths. The most painful and disgraceful and shameful of deaths. He suffered and died between two thieves on a Roman cross. Crucifixion was the most shameful, excruciating form of persecution the Romans could invent. In fact, our word excruciate even comes from the word crucify. That's how horrendous it was. And that's how our God chose to redeem us. 1 Peter 2.21 tells us that if we identify ourselves with Jesus, if we take advantage of this amazing gift of grace that He has given us at such a high cost, the highest of all sacrifices, that we're also called to this. He says in 1 Peter 2.21, Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in His steps. See, Jesus set us an example not only in His humanity, not only in His servanthood, but in his obedience and humility as exemplified through his suffering and death. We are called to follow him even in that. Being willing to suffer. Or as Jesus explained in Luke chapter 9, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. The final phrase of Christ's example for us is found in verses 9 through 11. We've seen Jesus' example through his divinity, his humanity, his humility, and now we come to his majesty. We see Jesus' exaltation. We witness his majesty. Let's look at verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, as a result, because of his incarnation and his crucifixion, God the Father glorified God the Son. Now, Jesus prayed for this. 
In that prayer in John 17, 5, he said, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. That pre-incarnate glory, Jesus prayed for it to return, and it does. And we see that right here in these verses. Paul says that God exalted him. That Greek word is once again a unique one in all the New Testament. Hyperipsu, meaning to raise, to exalt exceedingly, to give exceptional honor to. I think it's profound. This is the only place that word is used in all the New Testament. To describe the kind of exaltation that God the Father gives his son because of his humility and his obedience. Jesus experiences all of that. He is raised. He is exalted exceedingly. He is given exceptional honor. First, he's raised from the grave. God the Father raised him from the grave. And as Paul says in Colossians 1.18, making him the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. And then after Jesus' resurrection, he's raised even higher in his ascension. Just as Jesus went down, down, down in ever lower forms of humility and submission, so now he goes up, up, up in ever greater glory, majesty, and honor to the highest place, Paul writes. We looked at the first half of Hebrews 1.3 a few minutes ago, but the last part of that verse says that after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Paul says that God gave, he bestowed upon Jesus the name above every name. And what is that name? What is that name above every name? It's the name Jesus Christ the Lord. Jesus speaks to his humanity. And his redemptive mission is the one who came to save his people from their sins. Christ speaks to his authority as God's promised anointed one. The one who fulfills all of scripture. And Lord speaks to his divinity. As the Lord God of all creation, the God of Abraham, the God of Moses, the King of all kings. And it's at this name that someday every knee will bow in humble submission, recognizing his ultimate and eternal authority. It's at this name that someday every tongue will confess that he is Jesus the Christ, the Lord, and it's all to the glory of God the Father. Revelation 19 gives us a peek at this. John writes that I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen? Now, how does this serve as an example to us? Oh, it makes sense that we, you know, we can, Jesus' humanity, his humility, his, his suffering, his death, he emptied himself, he made himself a man of no reputation. Okay, we can get that as an example for us. How is this an example for us? Well, just as we should follow Jesus' example in humble service and obedience, even to the point of suffering for the sake of the kingdom of God, so we will be glorified and exalted with Christ. When he returns in glory. Paul says in Colossians 3, Since then you have been raised with Christ. So just as we are crucified with Christ, Paul says we are also raised with Christ. He says, Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Why? Because you died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears... 
then you will also appear with him in glory. Because Jesus was risen from the dead, we too, who are in Christ, will be raised from the dead. Because Jesus is exalted and honored in heaven, we too will be given places of honor as the sons and daughters of God for all of eternity in heaven. And not only then, but even now, today, His resurrection life is at work in us. Which is why Paul also says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. We can even now begin to experience the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ at work in our lives. Jesus illustrates for us what God is like, what we're meant to be like what humble service looks like, what our future exaltation and glorification in heaven will look like. And if Jesus illustrates, then what are we to do? Here's our second point. We're only on our second point in this sermon. Isn't that crazy? Jesus illustrates, we imitate. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. That's what Philippians 2, 1 through 5 is all about. Christians, we should follow Jesus' example, not flaunting our own rights or authority, but rather seeking to live lives of service. Let's look at those first four verses. Paul says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, he says, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. And what's that like-mind we're to have? The mind of... Jesus, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Isn't this what Jesus did for us? What Jesus did. Paul says in Ephesians 5 that we are to follow God's example as dearly loved children. Walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. That means that we seek a unity of heart, mind, and purpose. We work together. We pull together in the same direction. In the direction of taking the gospel to the world. It means that we share in Christ's humility. Now listen, humility doesn't mean you think less of yourself. Humility means you think of yourself less. We think of others. We put their needs before our own. We don't try to impress people. We value them above ourselves. We look out for their concerns, not just our own. Matthew chapter 20 tells us that Jesus called together his disciples and said, You know the rulers of the Gentiles lord their authority over them. Their high officials exercise authority over them. He says, Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to be less so that Jesus can be more? Are you willing to be last so that you can put Christ and others first? Are you willing to serve to give, even sacrificially, for the benefit of others? That's the example that Jesus has set for us. 
That's what the church should be like. That's what the early church was like to the point that they swept the Roman world. People were, were captivated by the way this group of people loved each other and the way they served their community. That's the example that we should follow. Maybe this morning as we prepare to sing our invitation, you need to come to this altar and you just need to lay down your pride, lay down that selfish ambition, that vain conceit, that self-centeredness, and just say, Jesus, forgive me. I've become so busy. I've become so consumed with accumulating wealth or working up the ladder and trying to get this promotion, uh, trying to build this reputation, that I've put you on the back burner. And I've mowed over other people to get where I am. Maybe you need to come and just lay all that at Jesus' feet and ask Him to help you to become as nothing, to become a servant, and to live for the benefit of others. But this morning, maybe you don't even know Jesus as your Lord and Savior today. Jesus did all of this. Everything we've read about today, Jesus did for you. He did all of that so that you could be made right with God. So that you can have a fresh start, have your sins forgiven. Know that your eternity in heaven is secure. So that you can begin to experience His resurrection life at work in you today. Maybe this morning you need to come and bow your knee right now and confess Jesus Christ as Lord. You know, your knee will bow and your tongue will confess that at some point. You can either do it now and experience His forgiveness and grace, or you can wait till the judgment seat and experience His wrath. The choice is yours. If you don't know Jesus Christ, I beg of you to come today. Do business with God and leave this place knowing that your relationship with Him is secure. Would you stand and pray with me? Father, we are so thankful for this amazing passage of Scripture and how much it reveals to us, Jesus, about who you are and what you came to do. It reveals to us your love and your humility and your obedience. And it convicts us of how unloving we can sometimes be, of how disobedient we often are, of how full of ourselves we can be when we have no right or reason to be full of ourselves at all. If you, who are God, could become nothing and humble yourself the way you did, who are we to ever elevate ourselves in our own eyes? Help us to see you as you really are. Help us to see ourselves the way you see us. You see us as sinners. You see us as enemies of God in our minds. You see us as rebels. And you see us as your creation whom you love so much that you would rather die on the cross than spend eternity without any one of us in your presence. And I pray that if there's anybody that needs to experience that grace for the first time in their life, that they would make that decision today and turn from their sins and in faith to you, Jesus. For those of us that you're followers, Lord, while we are still not perfect and we're still becoming more like you, we're still overcoming the the vestiges of sin in our life, you look at us and you see your sons and your daughters. You see your ambassadors. You see the Spirit living within each and every one of us. We are temples of your Spirit. So help us to be that light shining in the darkness. Help us to approach your throne of grace boldly. And help us to have that humble servant attitude that seeks to bring others into the kingdom. 
We ask it all in Jesus' name.